Tonight we're beginning our lesson in Isaiah 42, verse 18. Isaiah 42, verse 18, and we're going to move on into chapter 43. Last week I mentioned that I was going to stop at chapter 42, verse 17, because I think there's a a pretty significant shift that happens at chapter 42, verse 18. And probably the biggest shift is in the perspective of who the servant of the Lord is. If you remember last week, I mentioned that there are really, I guess, kind of like a pyramid, three levels in which we could think of this term, the servant of the Lord. At the very foundation of it, we have a very broad application to all of Israel, to all the Lord's people. And in our passage tonight, we're going to see all of Israel referred to as the servant of the Lord. Then, as you kind of move up that pyramid, it kind of narrows focus. And you can apply the servant of the Lord to not just all of Israel, but more narrowly to the remnant of Israel, to those that the Lord will redeem and save. And then... Ultimately, at the pinnacle of that is the Messiah, one individual servant of the Lord. And that individual, I think, is in view at the beginning of chapter 42. But when you transition to the last part of chapter 42, the part that we're looking at tonight, it seems fairly clear that we're looking at more of a national perspective of who that servant of the Lord is. And so one way of understanding it is the individual servant of the Lord will come to accomplish perfectly and righteously what the national servant of the Lord was not able to do. So the Israel as a servant of the Lord was flawed and imperfect and failed in many ways. But the individual servant of the Lord, the Messiah, he will come in perfectness and righteousness and he will accomplish and perfect what Israel as a nation failed to accomplish. And so I think we can see that that contrast here in our passage tonight. Beginning here in chapter 42, verse 18, we have the theme of Israel's release from bondage. Israel's release from bondage. Alec Motyer in his commentary on Isaiah starts out this section this way, and I thought this was incredibly powerful. He says, To know that the Lord must deliver his people is a deeper truth than knowing that he will do so. Think about that just for a moment. To know that the Lord must deliver his people is a deeper truth than knowing that he will do so. In other words, what we have beginning in this passage is not just a, not just a revelation of what God will do, but really showing that based on the faithfulness of the Lord, based on his promises, that he must rescue Israel in faithfulness to his own name. And so he is going to be the God who rescues his people, who releases them from bondage. And as we move into this section of Isaiah, we start to get a clearer picture of who that enemy is that's going to take them into bondage. In the first part of chapter 40 to 42, there's an enemy, but it's not really named. There, there's someone that, that Israel is going to be taken captive by, going to be defeated by, but, but they're not named. As we move further into this section, we're going to see that that enemy is Babylon. And, and they're going to be taken captive, and they're going to, be need, they're going to need 
freedom and release. And the Lord is going to come and, and bring that for them. But before we see Israel's release from bondage, we see the reason why they went into bondage in the first place. And that is because of their blindness. So we see in verses 18 through 25, Israel described as the blind servant. Israel described as the blind servant. In verse 18, it says, Hear, you deaf. Look, you blind, and see. Who is blind but my servant? And deaf like the messenger I send. Who is blind like the one in covenant with me? Blind like the servant of the Lord. Now, here is where I think we have to see a distinction between the servant of the Lord at the beginning of chapter 42 and who this is being described as the servant of the Lord beginning here in verse 18. Because if you remember back toward the beginning of chapter 42, here's how it describes the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord is one in whom I delight. He is my chosen one. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. So that's a very positive view of who the servant is. One who is in whom is righteousness and justice. One in whom the Lord will put his spirit And we know from the New Testament that this servant that the beginning of Isaiah 42 is referring to is Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the Messiah. These specific words of Isaiah are quoted in the Gospels of Jesus. But then you get to this portion of chapter 42, and the servant of the Lord is described as someone who is blind and deaf. Clearly, that's not the Messiah. That's not the Messiah. And so we, we see uh, this, this kind of multifaceted view in Isaiah of who the servant of the Lord can refer to. It can refer to an individual, the perfect chosen one, Messiah of the Lord, but it can also refer in a broader sense to Israel who has failed in many ways. And in this section of Isaiah, Israel is described as blind and deaf. And if you remember back toward the beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, God revealed himself to Isaiah. Remember that vision that Isaiah had in the temple? And he saw the, the, the hem of the Lord's robe and the whole temple filled with smoke and the glory of the Lord filling the temple. That was the call of Isaiah. That was his commission where the Lord says, who will I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. But then it goes on to describe the the mission that God gave to Isaiah. And that mission was, I want you to go to a people and teach those who can't hear. And show the word to those who can't see. And the words of Isaiah in chapter 6 are those who who see but are ever seeing but, but cannot see. Those who have ears but cannot hear. And so here, again, Israel is described as blind and deaf. And the idea is that they had the word of the Lord. They had not only the words of Isaiah, but they had Moses. 
They had the covenant law. They had the Torah. They had the Ten Commandments. They had all of the, the words of the Lord that they needed to live in obedience to him. But having the word of God is different than living by it, isn't it? And so they had this spiritual dullness, this spiritual insensitivity that they thought that they were doing fine. They had the Lord's word. They had these promises that they were the chosen of the Lord. They were the descendants of Abraham. But yet, they weren't putting the word of the Lord into their hearts. They weren't putting it into practice. They weren't holding it near and dear to them. And so they thought they could see, but really they were blind. They thought they could hear, but they were deaf. And so Isaiah describes them this way, as blind and deaf. He says in verse 20, You've seen many things, but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen. It's kind of like a paradox, isn't it? You've seen many things, and that could even refer to Israel's history and refer to the many mighty acts of the Lord that they've seen. Even in their recent history, we've seen the Lord deliver them from Assyria, right? King Sennacherib, who came and surrounded Jerusalem, and they were afraid that he might conquer them. But God delivered them with a mighty rescue and, and defeated their army. They woke, the, the Assyrians woke up the next morning and all these dead soldiers because the Lord had brought this plague through their camp. Remember what the Lord has done. You, know, you can look at that. You can go all the way back through their history and go back to the Exodus and how the Lord brought them out with a mighty hand. And yet, he says, you've seen many things, but you don't pay attention. Your ears are open, but in another sense, they're not. You really don't listen. So verse 21, it pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. So God gave the law to his people and the people of Israel were intended to be a light to the nations. And not in the sense of like a New Testament missionary sense of go out and go to the far ends of the world and, and, and preach the gospel. But the people of Israel were intended to be a light in the sense of come and see. See, see what God is doing among these people. See how he has rescued them, how he's redeemed them. See his, his, his holy and perfect word that is governing their lives. So he intended for his word, his righteousness to be magnified among his people. But that was not really the reality of it, was it? Because they failed in so many ways. Because this people is a people who's plundered and looted. All of them trapped in pits, all hidden away in prisons. They become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot with no one to say, send them back. And so great contrast between verses 21 and 22. Israel was intended to be a light to the nations, a, a place where God's word was magnified. And yet the reality is, is that they're being plundered and looted. And instead of being a light to the nations and the nations coming to them in desiring to know the word, the nations are coming to them in triumph and conquering them and plundering them and taking them off into captivity, taking them away into prisons. So which of you will listen to this or pay close attention in time to come? You blind, you deaf. When will you listen? When will you see? Who handed Jacob over to become loot? 
and Israel to the plunderers? That's a great question, isn't it? It's, he, Isaiah is asking a theological question here. Babylon has come and has plundered you and looted you and taken you captive. How has this come about? How has this happened? Yes, it's because you're blind and you're deaf. Yes, it's because you're sinful and you've rebelled against the Lord. But ultimately, it's the Lord's hand that did this, isn't it? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. And this is consistent with what we've seen in Isaiah, that that Isaiah wants the people of God to understand that no matter what happens in the world, that ultimately behind it all is God's hand of providence. Whether it be this king rising up to power over here, or this nation building up a mighty military, this nation attacking this nation, whatever's happening in the world, God's hand of providence is ultimately behind it. So he's, he's wanting the Israelite people to think about this. Why have you gone into captivity, into Babylon? Why have you been defeated and plundered by the Babylonians? Yes, it's because of your sin. It's ultimately, though, because the Lord has allowed this to happen. So he poured out his anger on them, his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. And so the Lord allowed this to happen on them. And here's the thing that we have to hold in tension in Isaiah. Under the covenant, God loves his people and will not forsake them. And yet at the same time, he can demonstrate his holy wrath and punish them. So he has not ultimately forsaken Israel. His love is still committed to them. But that is fully consistent with the covenant in which he can punish them in his holy anger. He can bring on them the blessings of the covenant as well as the curses of the covenant as revealed in Deuteronomy. And so the Lord's anger came to his people because of their sin. And even in the midst of this tragedy, even while they're in the flames of captivity, of defeat, they still did not understand. They still did not take it to heart. In other words, it's going to take more than just physical punishment for God's people's eyes to be open. There's going to have to be a spiritual work that's done in their hearts. And I think there's, there's a lesson there for us too, even a very practical lesson that we could apply to our situation today in that, Sometimes we think that, you know, maybe it's, a, maybe it's somebody who's not a believer. Or maybe someone who we think maybe be a believer, but maybe wandering away from God, maybe wayward and rebellion against God. And we think that maybe if something tragic were to happen in their lives, it would get their attention. And would open their eyes and it would draw them back to the Lord. And yet this verse says that, something incredibly tragic happened to the people of Israel. And even though they're going through the flames, still they did not take it to heart. Why? Because something more than just a tragic accident has to happen for somebody's eyes to be open. There has to be a spiritual work of regeneration, doesn't there? So that, you know, whatever that event may be, 
that God may use that as a part of what he's doing in that person's life, but ultimately no physical injury or, or difficult circumstance is going to bring someone from lostness to being saved. In order for that to happen, it has to be a spiritual work of regeneration. A miracle has to happen. Same thing here for the people of Israel. Just going into Babylonian captivity is not going to teach them the lesson. They need a work of God's Spirit in their hearts to soften them and open their eyes to see and their ears to hear. So they're blind, they're deaf, they've been plundered, they're in the midst of the fire, but God is going to redeem them. And chapter 43, verse 1, is a huge reversal. In spite of Israel being blind and deaf, God is going to redeem them. Israel redeemed. Verse 1 says, But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you. And you can even see the transition there. But now. So, blind, deaf, enveloped in the flames. But now. This is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob. He who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. And I want to read something from Alec Mottier's commentary here on verse 1, because I just think this is incredibly helpful. He says in, in verse number 1, he says, In creation, the Lord originates maintains, controls, and directs. His relationship to his people is the same. He says the idea of formed is very intimate. It indicates painstaking care, whereby every circumstance of life is weighed and measured to give exactly the right pressure of the potter's hand so that the finished vessel will match his specifications. So very, very painstakingly, providing care and effort in forming Israel. And then he says, more intimate still is redeemed. The Lord's deliberate acceptance of all the rights of the next of kin, making the needs of his helpless relative his own, drawing from the idea of the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament, of God becoming the, that near kinsman, the next of kin, and taking upon himself the, the burden of rescuing his family member. And then he says, finally, in a crowning intimacy, there is naming. To call by name is a direct personal relationship involving having a specific plan and place for the one named. And so he says, like a true and glad-hearted Boaz, the Lord redeemed and married his Israel Hence the triumphant shout, you are mine, mine you are. And so it is a very, very powerful description when it says, this is what the Lord says. He created you. He made you by power. But then even more intimate than that, he formed you with a loving potter's hand. And then he took upon himself the, the family responsibility of redeeming you. And, and then he gives you a name, claims you as his own. And he says this of Israel. So no matter how blind you are, 
no matter how deaf you are, no matter how rebellious you have been, no matter what chastisements I bring your way, you are still mine, is what this verse is saying. You are still mine. It says, do not fear. Do not fear. The greatest comfort that God's child can know is to know that they belong to God. To know that they're his. To know that he made them, formed them, redeemed them, and called them individually by name. There's no greater comfort than that. And it's some of the most precious verses in all of scripture. Verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Again, I think that's helpful to read in the context of the end of chapter 42 in the idea of fire, because the idea of passing through the waters, of going through the flames, is probably the imagery of going off into exile. So going off into exile, you're going to be going through the the deep waters. Going off into exile, you're going to be passing through the flames. But God's, even though that's a part of God's chastisement, his wrath on his people, still in his grace, in his mercy to his people, there are limits to what those waters and those flames can do. They will not overpower you. They will not overcome you because you're mine. And so even, in, even though they're going to go through the waters and go through the flames, go through the difficult times, God has not abandoned them. And he has set limits on what those things can do to his people. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And I, I believe this is the first time in Isaiah that God is specifically called Israel's Savior. He says, I'm your savior, the holy one of Israel. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. And the imagery here is God says to Israel, you are mine. And if need be, I will exchange other nations for you. To bring you out and to rescue you. If need be, I will will deliver Egypt into Babylon's hands. So you can be saved. If need be, I will deliver Cush and Seba. And these are even further south than Egypt into the Sudan region. I will deliver them up in your place so you can be rescued. And I think there's an intentional uh, link here, an intentional drawing our attention back to Exodus with, with the mention of Egypt. Because, in essence, that's exactly what God did when he created Israel as a nation and redeemed them from Egypt, is he gave Egypt in their place, didn't he? Instead of allowing his people to go through the fire, he pulled them out and rescued them and brought the fire down on Egypt. He sent his plagues and his wonders and his judgments on Egypt and gave up Egypt in exchange for Israel so that they could be his. And God says, if I did it in the past, I will do it again. I will give another nation in exchange for your life. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. He even goes even broader 
than in verse number three. In verse three, he says Egypt and Cush and Seba. Here he just goes out to the whole world, doesn't he? I will give humanity. I will give all the nations in exchange for you to rescue you. That is incredible. Those are incredible words of love, aren't they? You are precious. You are honored. Why? Is it because they were worthy somehow of that? Is it because they had earned it somehow? No, not at all. It's because God loved them, right? God loved them. He loved them. The reason why they were honored is because God honored them. The reason why they were precious is because God made them precious in his sight. God loved them. And one of the commentaries I was reading brought out a very good point, And that is, if the sinfulness and the pagan idolatry and the rebellion of the descendants of Abraham did not keep God from choosing them in the first place and rescuing them from Egypt, then why would their sin be a hindrance now to him forgiving them and rescuing them from Babylon? Their sin was no problem when he rescued them from Egypt. Their sin is no problem now when he's going to rescue them from Babylon. And it's all about his choice of electing electing love, isn't it? I love you. You're precious in my sight. I will not let you go. If I have to, I'll give nations in exchange for you so that you can go free. So do not be afraid, for I'm with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Now, I think here, Isaiah is taking his telescope, and he's expanding it outward. If you understand what I mean by that, is the the near view range of his telescope is Babylon. They're going to come back from Babylon. That's God's redeeming of them. And and he's going to rescue them. And through Cyrus and and the Medes and the Persians, he's going to allow the people of Judah to come back home. That's kind of the near focus of the telescope. But now in verse five and six, when he kind of gets bigger and says, I'm going to go out to the east and the west and the north and the south, the idea of the four corners of the earth, and I'm going to bring my people back, especially when you think about the reference to the nations in verse four, I'm going to go out into all of humanity, all the nations, north and south, east and west, and I'm going to bring my people back home. It's probably extending that telescope outward to the end of the age and looking at the final regathering of God's people in the last days and bringing them home to a new Jerusalem, a new heavens and a new earth. And so Isaiah is extending that telescope out. He's, he's showing what's going to happen after the Babylonian captivity up against the backdrop of the even greater eschatological salvation that God's going to bring in the end. So I'm going to bring them home. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, they're coming back home. And we can apply that to us as New Testament believers. And, and so when we think about the church, when we think of those who are redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, when we think about when Jesus Christ comes back, we see some of this exact same language in Matthew 24 with the return of the Lord that I'm going to send my angels out to the four corners of the earth and they're going to gather my elect. 
So here Isaiah is talking about it in terms of Israel coming back home from exile, but there's a greater return from exile to, to come, and that is at the end of the age when Christ calls all of his people back to a great and final reunion to enter then into the new heavens and new earth and a new glory, a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. We have that to look forward to. That's right. Yeah, exactly. He's going to extend that out, isn't he, beyond the borders of Israel to include the Gentiles. And praise God for you and me that that's the case. He's going to bring everyone in who is called by by his name. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that that picture of the the olive tree is really a good picture because it, it's regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, it's about whether or not you belong to the Lord, and He He grafts you in, and you're a part of that one people of God. That's right. And so then we move into verses eight through thirteen, and we see Isaiah describing the certainty of what the Lord has promised that the Lord will do what he said he would do. So verse 8, Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. So this is going back to the end of chapter 42. Israel blind and deaf, lead them out. Bring them out. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of their gods foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove that they were right so that others may hear and say it is true. Recurring theme in this section of Isaiah, God versus the gods. The one true God of Israel versus the small g gods of the other nations. And the thing that makes the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, God is he creates, he redeems, and he foretells what is going to happen. And so you see this emphasis in this section of Isaiah of let any other God foretell what's going to happen. Bring out the witnesses to show that they foretold it and then it came to pass. And again, there are none because only the Lord can do this. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. Speaking to Israel, you're my witnesses and my servants whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. It's the exclusivity of the Lord God, isn't it? That I am he. And the emphasis is on he and he alone, right? The God who creates, the God who rescues, the God who foretells the future, there is only one. Other than him, there is no God. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. So there's one creator, there's one savior, there's one who controls history, there is no other. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I and not some foreign God among you, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? Those words remind me of Daniel chapter 3. 
I believe it's Daniel chapter 3, where the three Hebrew servants, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are confronted with this challenge to bow down before this image that Nebuchadnezzar has made. And when they refuse to bow down in worship of an idol, Nebuchadnezzar makes this boast. Nebuchadnezzar says, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? It's very pompous, isn't it? Very arrogant. Nebuchadnezzar thinking of himself like a god and challenges all the gods in existence. What god is there that can deliver you from my hand? He is bound and determined to throw them into the fiery furnace. And he does. And he gets the answer to his question, doesn't he? What god is there that can deliver you out of my hands? He finds out it's the god of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, it's Yahweh, it's the Lord God of Israel. He is able to deliver them out of his hand. But now God can say this, and he can say it truthfully. He can say it not in proud arrogance, he can say it in true honor and glory. Who can deliver out of my hand? Nobody can. Nobody's stronger than God. And so God will come to the aid of his people. And then we see the the last few verses of this passage We see redemption from Babylon, and it's described in terms of like a new exodus. Some of the images and the words that are used here describe it kind of like a a new exodus from Egypt, except this time from Babylon. Verses 14 through 21. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. So here we get specific, don't we? You know, before we were just talking about an unnamed enemy, but now the Lord's getting specific. He's, he's prophesying who this enemy is. Yes, Babylon's going to take you captive, but I am going to destroy Babylon. I'm going to bring them down. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your King. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters. That's Exodus, isn't it? So we have the deliverance from Pharaoh. When they're, they're stuck there between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army, and God says to Moses, put your staff into the Red Sea, and it parts, and they walk across on dry ground. This is what Isaiah is referring to. The one who made a way through the sea. The one who delivered his people before, he will do it again. Who drew out the chariots and the horses, the army, and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Talking about Pharaoh's army, right? Buried in the waters. After the Israelites passed through, the Egyptian army went in, and the waters came back and drowned them all. Never to rise again. Forget the, the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Essentially, Isaiah is saying, remember what God did for Egypt or for you in Egypt and brought you through the waters, brought you through the sea and then buried Pharaoh's army in the waters. Okay, now set that aside for a moment. Because now I want you to focus your attention on a new thing. What is this new thing? 
This new thing is just as powerful, just as mighty, except now the pathway that God's going to open up is not through the Red Sea, it's through the wilderness between Babylon and Jerusalem. And they're going to pass through again. They're coming home. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. It's almost like in the Exodus, the waters stood up and were like witnesses to the Lord's deliverance of his people. In this, it's almost like you've got these wild wilderness animals on the sidelines, on on this path that God has opened up for his people. They're walking through, they're going home. And all of God's creation is honoring him because they're seeing his deliverance of his people. And he's providing for them along the way. He's giving them water in the wilderness on their way back from Babylon to Jerusalem, just like he did provide water for them in the wilderness when they left Egypt and came to Canaan. It's like a new exodus. God's bringing his people back home again. And so God's redeeming his people. And then when we get into the New Testament, we see some of these same themes again. Some of the same kind of language in talking about God bringing his new covenant people home. But this time, not to just an ordinary Jerusalem, not just to an ordinary Judea, but to a new heavens and a new earth, to a new Jerusalem coming down. And we are, we are viewed in the New Testament as like pilgrims and exiles. You can see Peter talk about that in First Peter other of the, of the apostles in the letters of the New Testament, look at us as like pilgrims, exiles in a foreign land. But one day, there's going to be another exodus. And we're going home. But this time, to an eternal one. One that will not fade away. One that will never again be filled with sickness or pain or death. It is a, a new exodus and a final one in which we are led to a true and beautiful, eternal, glorious promised land. And so we look forward to that day. We look forward to that day just as much as the Israelite people look forward to their deliverance from Babylon. But we can look forward to it to an even greater degree with greater clarity because of what the New Testament reveals to us. And going home to an eternal promised land is so much infinitely better than coming back from Babylon to a broken down Jerusalem, isn't it? And yet the people of God were looking forward to with great joy, leaving Babylon and coming back to Jerusalem, even though they were going to come back to a broken down city and a broken down temple that they would have to rebuild. But we look forward to is a holy city, a heavenly city that is more glorious than any city that has ever existed on this planet. And God's going to bring us home there. And we look forward to that with hope, with faith. And so like Isaiah reminded the people of then, He says to us now, don't fear. Don't fear. No matter what's going on around us, no matter what what is shaking up in the news or in geopolitical affairs, no matter if you're a persecuted Christian in China or in Sudan, no matter if you're being taken to court in America because you're a Christian, no matter what's happening, do not fear because God's on the throne. And one day he's bringing us home. That's really the message of Isaiah. And so I hope that we can take heart from it just as they could.